Chapter 2 of California Desert Trails by Joseph Smeet and Chase. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 The Palm Oases and Canyons. Though the palm is certainly not the most beautiful, it is perhaps the most poetic of trees. In symmetry of tapering shaft, fountain-like burst of crown, and play of glossy frond, it is the ideal of gracefulness in plant life. Incidentally, there is the charm of its atmosphere of literary illusion, of which it probably has more than any other tree can claim. To dwellers in cold or temperate climates, it brings also alluring thoughts of tropic warmth, skies normally sunny, and a life emancipated from winter flannels. Spreading up from northern Mexico, a number of groups of the fan palm, Washingtonia filifera, are found in the canyons and oases of the Colorado Desert. They are known but to few, and those are mainly prospectors and such stray characters whose business or hobby makes them wanderers in that harsh region. Such human life as the desert has, that is, the actual desert, the unconquered and unconquerable wastes of burning sand and mountain, drifts and circles about these spots, necessarily so, since the presence of palms means the presence also of that rarest, strictest necessity, water. The Arab's axiom regarding the date palm, that its foot must be in water and its head in open sun, is true of its relative the fan palm. Thus, in the talk of desert men, the palm figures constantly. You hear of dos palmas, thousand palms, palm springs, twenty-nine palms, seventeen palms, two-bunch palms, and so on. But the names mean to the traveler not only water, but shade, and with a chance of grass for his animals and the relief of verdure for his sorely harassed eyes. Some of the groups occur about the boundary of the sea that anciently filled the Great Depression, which is now partly occupied by the Salton Sea, and whose beach mark is today startlingly plain at the base of the encircling hills. Such groups, probably, represent the indigenous growths. A number more are found at higher altitudes, but of these many are known to have been planted by the present or former Indian inhabitants of the region. The westerly limit of growth is a rocky defile on the south side of Snow Creek Canyon, which is a rift of San Jacinto Mountain, about opposite Whitewater Station on the Southern Pacific Railway. This group marks the nearest approach made by the wild palm to coastal conditions of climate, for the spot is within a few miles of the crest of the San Gorgonio Pass, which here forms the dividing line between California barren and California fertile. A thread of tepid water moistens the roots of the trees, while not a mile away rushes the icy brook that gives its name to the canyon. I camped at various times in most of the considerable canyons of the upper part of the desert. Each has its special charm, while those that come down from the high mountains that shut off desert from coast possess a dual beauty, the characteristics of a true mountain canyon, such as trees, cascading streams, and the varied life that goes with them, together with the features of a land made savage by torturing sun, unblessed by the mercy of rain. The mingling of these two elements gives often a fascinating result. It was still winter, the end of January, when I pitched my little six-by-three-foot tent in Chino Canyon. 
This is a great rift opening on the northwestern arm of the desert directly under the peak of San Jacinto Mountain. It gets its name from old Chino, a former chief of the Aguacaliente Indians, whose rancheria adjoins the little village of Palm Springs, a few miles to the south of the canyon. I had visited the spot years before, and kept an affectionate memory of a warm spring that breaks out near the head of the great apron of Talus that sweeps down from the neck of the canyon to the level desert. It was toilsome work navigating my burrow, Mesquite, through these miles of boulders, with a rise from 500 feet to 2,000 feet of altitude, and there was neither mood nor leisure for scenery until we reached the little clump of palms that marked our destination. But when camp was pitched, and serenity returned, I found a high coin among the rocks and took my satisfaction. I was at about the limit of growth of the water-loving trees that accompanied the creek as far as they dared, sycamore, alders, cottonwoods, and willows. Here they stopped short abruptly, and from here desertward only the starveling vegetation of drought held the ground. The pale shrubs seemed to have copied the look of the gray boulders, as if hoping by subterfuge to escape the notice of the sun. Each bush of encilia or burrowweed grew rounded and compact, and in twilight or moonlight would not be distinguished from the rocks, except where they grew among the rust-brown slabs of the canyon walls, when one would swear he saw a flock of grazing sheep, every one distinct to the eye. Straight in front, the canyon opened in steep, smooth descent, bounded by high and barren walls, the western already dark in shadow, the other in full sun and glowing with volcanic intensity of red. At three miles' distance, these ran out into the level like capes extending far out to sea, a sea of lifeless gray that broke southward in one huge crest of sand that was like a tidal wave, stopped and held in full career. In sharp relief against the neutral hue of the sand stood the dark, gleaming fans of palms. The distance was closed by a level rampart of mountains in faint ethereal tones of rose, chrome, and amethyst. I had not many such evening prospects during the two weeks I camped in Chino Canyon. It was a wet winter, and I was not far from being perpendicularly below the ten-thousand-and-odd-foot peak of the mountain, which was engaged in perpetual storm. After days of rain, I would determine to move, at the first cessation, down to the valley, which I could often see stewing in sunshine while I shivered over an unwilling campfire in the rain. I don't know why it didn't occur to me to get into the warm spring and wait until the clouds had rained themselves out. But when a change came, my mind changed with it, and I stayed. At last there came a drop in temperature, and after three days and nights of torrential downpour, I awoke one morning to find the sun shining and the mountains sheeted with snow down to a few hundred feet above camp. Then it was high luxury to lie in my thermal pool and get a startling effect of shining green palm fronds with background of solid snow. The Indians hereabouts have a legend that Taquitz, alias Chauk, their evil spirit, lives in San Jacinto Mountain, and attributes to his operations the peculiar noises, rumblings, and so forth that are sometimes heard proceeding from his haunts. Several times, while in this canyon, when lying on the ground at night, I heard the sounds plainly. There was no tremor of earthquake, but it is possible that the heavy rains caused a movement of the rocks on the mountainside. 
the sounds whatever made them were easily transmitted to me since my ear was practically in contact with the earth who knows but it was the fellow in the cellarage old true penny himself some miles to the south is andreas canyon another of the gateways of the same mountain it also is named after an indian old captain andreas the remains of whose adobe hut and orchard of vines and figs are yet in existence here the following winter i camped for nearly three months gratifying aboriginal instincts by a return to cave life the cavern which served for dining-room study and kitchen had been the home of indians and was adorned with their picture writings while a sort of upper story was quite a museum of age-dimmed records in red and black one upright stone was worn into grooves like knuckles where arrow shafts had been smoothed another showed evidence of having been used for polishing the obsidian points the great table-like rock where i kept a store of hay for my horse kawia mesquite and i had had a difference and parted was bored in a dozen places with circular holes where acorn and mesquite meal had been ground by generations of diligent squaws whose deer-horn awls and ornaments of shell and clay i occasionally unearthed as i did also bones in remarkable numbers and of questionable shapes of andreas now long gathered to his fathers the word goes that he was given to the distilling of awardiente from his grapes breaking thereby the law of the land however considering that the art had been learned from the whites that he had no voice in making the law and that the land in question had been taken from him and his people there seems not much logic in blaming him peace to your ashes andreas i can certify that your fig trees still do bud and yield better fruit perhaps than some of us the same striking conjunction of desert and coast vegetation rules here as in chino canyon down to the very neck a bare hundred yards from where open desert comes in view trees grow in full verdure curtained in wild grapevines that make an arbor of summer green or autumn chrome and sienna over the darkling pools of the creek at the point where they cease they are met by a colony of palms and these give place to the low-toned herbage of the desert the canyon is notable for a fine rank of palisade cliffs which with their massive sculpturing and dark egyptian hue make a wonderful foil for the beauty of the palms some of these stand statue-like in vertical alcoves of the wall others bend in tropic grace above crystalline pools or spring in rocket-like curve from the thickets of mesquite or arrowweed one cluster arranged in the form of a great hall especially took my fancy the palms that compose it have kept all their dead foliage which hanging in straw yellow masses about the stems gives them impressive girth and solidity while wind is stirring the fronded capitals these massive pillars standing in unbroken stillness seem like the immemorial columns of babylon my nights in that strange place worked up into mystery by glimmer of star or trickle of wandering moonbeam through the tracery of the roof were the sort of experience one loves to repeat in memory in a narrow gateway of the upper canyon stands a single stately palm framed by tall cliffs of egyptian red its solitariness spiry grace and statuesque pose give it special individuality and sentimentally 
I allowed myself to name it, La Reina del Cañón. Evenings by the campfire in the cave were enlivened by visitors, kangaroo mice, skunks, and tarantulas, who adopted me without reserve into the ancient order of cave dwellers. The mice were charming companions, eating beans and hardtack with me off our common plate, and only occasionally needing an admonitory rap with a spoon. By day, quail were frequent callers, aligning themselves on a shelving rock overhead to criticize my housekeeping. And once, a lynx halted bashfully when ten yards from the breakfast table. Bighorn tracks were often fresh on the cactus mesa beyond the creek, and my regular morning alarm was the practicing of chromatic scales by a canyon wren midway up the cliff. Andreas Canyon had become endeared to me by these and other social ties when, about noon one Saturday, a gentle but persistent rain began, one of the occasions one recognizes as meant for the cooking of beans. I charged my biggest pot and passed the afternoon in holding the fire at that scientific minimum that the frijole justly demands and wondrously repays. Footnote. The red or pink Mexican bean, frijol in Spanish, pronounced frijole or affectionately as above. End of footnote. The rain continued, taking on the industrious look that Californians know and love as forecasting a successful season in real estate. At intervals I brought in fuel, storing it in dry crannies of the cave. Kawea, protected by his heavy blanket, was tied close to the creek under a tree against which I had built his manger. Darkness came early, and the rain increased to a heavy downpour. I ate supper in dusk, fed and watered the horse, covered the hay with a tarpaulin, and turned into the blankets on my camp cot to smoke a pipe. This proved more than usually cheering. A tent with sousing range were revealed as ideal conditions for the combustion of Virginia Longcut. This discovery I had opportunity to confirm in the days that ensued. Before turning in finally, I lighted the lantern and took a look at the creek. It had risen a few inches, as was natural in a canyon stream, but the tent was six or eight feet above it and a rod back from the bank. Nothing to worry about, so I went to bed and, lulled by the roar of the rain on canvas, was soon fast asleep. This placidity was ill-judged. Some suffocating object, something heavy and wet and cold, came down and embraced me with what I felt to be undue familiarity. For a few moments I was puzzled, then realized the tent. It had sagged with weight of water and the pegs had pulled from the softened ground. I noticed, too, that the sound of rushing water was oddly close. Pushing away the wet canvas, I put out a foot. Instead of the expected boot, it encountered a cold swirl of water that came half to the knee. Next, my groping hand took note of the abnormal position of the tent pole, which leaned almost horizontal under the ruin of the canvas. I saw what had happened. The creek was over its banks, had undermined the pole and brought down the tent, and was making a clean breach through my quarters. My thoughts flew to Kawea. He was some twenty-five yards downstream from me and on lower ground. Struggling under the waterlogged canvas, I hurriedly got into my soaking clothes and somehow got clear of the tent. It was pitch dark, raining like fury, and the water was now knee-high and running like a sluice. 
I stumbled down to Kawea, who neighed shrilly when he saw me. He had taken the highest spot his rope allowed him, but the water was almost to his belly, and we were both in some danger of being swept away. Cutting the rope, I scrambled with him up the bank and tied him on high ground near the cave. Then for an hour I slopped to and fro, rescuing what remained of my effects and storing them in dry corners of the cave. Not a few articles had been carried away, but most were caught under the collapsed tent, which itself was anchored by a rock against which it had stranded. It was wet work, but warming, and I soon worked up a first-rate Turkish bath. The next need was fire. By now the cave was a poor refuge, though it might have looked enjoyable to a naiad. Rain dripped everywhere from the shelving rocks that formed at best a nominal roof, and cascades ran picturesquely down the walls. The floor was a mere bog. Only a space about three feet square was free from overhead drip, and on this islet I built a tiny fire over which I crouched in partial shelter. I suppose it was near daybreak, but on looking at my watch found it was eleven o'clock. I cherished that fire as few things are cherished on this planet. When gusts blew the rain in upon it, I covered it with my hat. When it sulked and sputtered because the bog encroached, I fed it with splinters from my tripod. When the wind scattered the cupful of embers, I scraped them up reverently like a parsee. At last I got a good blaze, made a billy of coffee, and settled to the night's work of drying myself, blankets, gun, camera, and etc. The storm maintained a headlong deluge which did not moderate for a moment. The creek had risen higher and was making wild uproar as huge boulders began to come down from the upper canyon, thundering and bumping along like barrels tumbling down a stairway. With the boulders went the trees. The one to which Kawea had been tied, a full-grown sycamore, had disappeared soon after I moved him. Only by a few minutes had he escaped going with it. Now I watched tree after tree succumb. First their tops, which showed dimly against the sky, would begin to shiver as the water tore away the earth like a terrier at a rat hole. Then, as roots broke from their grip, the victim stooped lower and lower until water and granite between them gave the coup de gras, and the unlucky alder or sycamore toppled over and was whirled off to make campfires for fortunate prospectors. Daylight came, and with it the end of my fuel. By now the cave was worthless. Water poured in steady streams from roof and walls, and the floor had become a pool. Among my salvaged traps was the little three-by-six-foot tent of light, waterproof stuff, which I carry on winter horseback trips. This I pitched on the highest spot available, first laying a thick stratum of arrowweed over the sodden ground. Inside I spread half a bale of dry hay, then crept in and sat tight. This was Sunday. It passed. Also Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and not for a moment did the storm hold off. I read, smoked, ate, slept, and dashed out when necessary to attend Kawea or drive the tent stakes deeper into the spongy earth. When I awoke on Thursday, a yellow glow was brightening my tentlet. It was the sun, shining in the old, wholehearted California way, and I hurried out to renew acquaintance. Looking up the canyon, there was little that I recognized. 
the place where the other tent had stood could now be known by a scrap of canvas projecting above a new creek bed of dazzling freshly scoured granite while Kawea's former quarters were submerged in midstream in the afternoon came pablo marcos and miguel to round up their remaining cattle and mourn the six or eight head that had vanished in the storm together with all their possibilities of pesos carne and cuero finding me in the act of replenishing the bean-pot they expressed slight indian surprise and mentioned that certain of my belongings having been picked up some miles away where the flood had carried them it had been supposed that i was drowned by way of congratulation they stayed to help with the beans it was fifty years they said since so heavy a storm had visited the desert and news that came later of broken dams and loss of life in the adjoining coast region made this seem likely to be true just to the south of palm springs there is an imposing gash in the mountain wall which goes by the name of Taquitz canyon the stream which debouches here rises on Taquitz peak a subsidiary summit of san jacinto mountain and whispered to be the private eyrie of Taquitz himself the canyon is remarkable for magnificent cliffs forming at the mouth a cirque with walls rising sheer for hundreds of feet this titanic coliseum makes a superb effect by morning light when vast crater-like shadow is outlined by grim though sunlit rock bolts that guard the towering gateway it would be a worthy portal to avernus and when taquas has his waterfall in full blast a quite infernal uproar reigns in the confined place while the great southern cliff acting as a sounding board projects a full-mouthed roar upon the ears of the villagers of palm springs twelve miles to the southeast is magnesia spring canyon or to give it the old indian name pawate signifying the drinker where i made camp for a couple of weeks in early spring it is different from the canyons already described being a long winding gallery instead of the usual wide-mouthed triangle narrowing suddenly to a gorge and is typical of strictly desert conditions here no cataracts blow their trumpets from the steep one finds no growth of water-loving trees for the canyon does not lead down as do the others from rain-compelling peaks and only the slenderest thread of water trickles in it for the most part underground this was enough however to maintain one lovely rock-bound pool in which by skinning one's knees a miniature swim could be achieved high falcon-haunted cliffs partly encircled the pool and a couple of palms growing in a niche fifty feet above gave a tropic touch of luxury on arriving at the pool i found fresh tracks of mountain lion in the damp sand my main object in this canyon was the chance of photographing bighorn which are rather plentiful hereabouts but there would be a small prospect of these so long as lions were in the neighborhood it would be some compensation i thought to add a cougar pelt to my coyote skin mattress so i built a brush blind twenty yards from the spring made an early supper and took my station shotgun with a full charge of buckshot across my knees seven shooter and hunting knife in reserve there was a half moon and on the open space of sand around the spring even a small object could be plainly seen but my warlike preparations went for naught for five hours i crouched at the kivive but no such dark shape as i looked for came pacing across the moonlit sand 
a fox trotted by stopped with paw upraised and trotted on and later i made out a group of shadowy forms sixty yards away that certainly were bighorn the first i had met in their own haunts my nerves tingled suppose the cougar were stalking the band but the moon sank behind the cliff and when i could no longer see my gun sights i concluded that the coyote skins would do very well alone and turned in the next two nights i again sat on watch and not unprofitably though with no result of cougars it is in the purity and stillness of such hours in tranquil fall of moonbeam on rock and shrub and in such sense of awful but calming solitude that one learns by the sacredness of nature the beauty of god the face of the cliff near the spring showed a number of likely crannies which i searched for indian relics most of them were packed with bits of stick or cactus the caches of those punctilious thieves the trade rats in a side canyon however i found a handsome oya or kawomol to give it the indian name it had been hidden in a breakneck place fifty feet up a precipitous cliff where i glimpsed it by chance it stood upright on a bed of earth that must have been carried up from below and was protected by slabs of rock with padding of palm fiber probably it had held water perhaps stored in case of siege but that had long vanished and it contained nothing but a deposit of dust almost intangibly fine like dust of mummies or of time itself which had somehow gathered in spite of the neck being closed with a flat fragment of rock i suppose this mysterious dust would distill in course of ages from the upper ether itself some product of cosmic disintegration how many years the oya had stood there is a matter for free guessing perhaps fifty perhaps five hundred its circumference was over fifty inches and its capacity about eight gallons a furious wind was blowing that threatened to throw me from the cliff and gave me trying moments but hugging oya with one arm and cliff with the other i got my prize safely down next i moved some miles farther south to deep canyon toho of the indians commemorating some hunter who never gets his game this is a canyon of santa rosa mountain opening just west of the long rocky point that runs out on the desert at indian wells it is notable for its vast apron of debris through which mesquite and i struggled for endless hours being forced at last to make a dry camp when nightfall overtook us in a jungle of choya in the morning we soon reached water and also the ocotillos the view of which in flower was my special object here since first meeting the plant the previous year i had looked forward to camping among them when in full blossom as these now were it was the middle of march and so entering them in my lasting book of remembrance i have described this remarkable plant to the western deserts in another chapter here i pitched my tent in a thicket of them enjoying their splendid color by day and their weird shadow play on my moonlit canvas at night the dead canes and stumps made an excellent campfire burning with a white flame as of wax that justified the plant's alternative name of candlewood nearby were specimens of the agave or wild century plant some just beginning to send up their giant flowering stalks measuring the rate of growth of one of these i found that it gained five inches in twenty-four hours 
Tracks of bighorn were plentiful about the camp every day, and their deeply worn trails marked the canyon walls in all directions. Often at night, the rattle of falling stones told me of their movements on the cliffside above. Wildcat and coyote also left their footprints in my absence. I met here a flock of the interesting pinion jays, which long puzzled me by their unjay-like traits, as they flew swiftly along the face of the mountain, uttering a wild, sweet, plaintive cry. Who ever heard of a plaintive jay? Eagles, too, I often saw, and ravens croaked from unscalable crags. Friendlier birds were the acrobatic flycatchers and phenopeplas that performed from the tops of the agaves, and a pair of rose-breasted linnets that regularly came to breakfast and made me long confidences in happy cavatina. The cactus wrens gained my respect by the nonchalance with which they treated the formidable choyas. Since the nightingale prefers to lean her breast against a thorn, it seems a pity she cannot try the effect of a choya. A tramp at dawn up the higher canyon was full of pleasure. At the point where it narrows to the main ravine, the stream became a series of cascades linked by many a circling pool so fishable in look that there was pathos in the thought that they must be forever troutless. As the canyon doubled and twisted, the walls became ever higher and more precipitous. When the sun came up, the western cliff became the battlements of some castle in the realm of fairy. I often halted in wonder as some reach opened before me, filled with mystical light. The conjunction of extreme beauty of color with savagery of giant walls and thundering water gave a strange effect of unreality. A few isolated groups of palms were set high up on the walls. They seemed to have a conscious air as if they had been waiting until now for first recognition. Mountain sheep make these lonely groves their shelter in summer heat and winter storm, but human foot, unless perhaps some Indian hunters, may never have been set in them. On little benches here and there I came upon delightful beds of flowers, usually of one kind, here I first met the exquisite Malvastrum, in delicacy and fragility more like some hothouse product than the child of desert sand and sun. Those who know the globe tulip of our coast mountains may picture this as a blossom of the same ethereal character, but palest lilac instead of white, and stained at the base of each petal with a spot of carmine. A plant with half a dozen of the lamp-like flowers is as fairy-like a thing as a child could dream. Another new acquaintance was the Fagonia, a low-glowing relative of the creosote, having starry blossoms of pale magenta. Dwarf lupines occupied stretches of pure sand, and astrolcias with pale yellow florets, comically small, showed the effects of drought upon the magnificent Copa de Oro of the coast. On the driest places, exposed to the sun's full blast, the lovely little Arameostrum or desert star looked up, winsome as daisies on an English lawn. Upon returning to camp, I found the first rattlesnake of the season had arrived and was enjoying my blankets in the tent. He seemed firm but calm, as if open to any reasonable offer. While I sought a tripod, he vanished. In the night, I felt something creeping over my chest under the blankets, and with panic remembered my visitor, who might have come to claim a share of the accommodation. I made a really brilliant jump, struck a match, and met the reproachful gaze of a large, stout, 
comatose lizard that was searching affectionately for the nice warm bedfellow who had suddenly turned unkind. Crossing to the east side of the desert, here not many miles wide, a wonderful spectacle is seen in the crowded groves of Thousand Palm Canyon. In this wide gallery, opening from the foothills of the San Bernardino at near sea level, the palm seems most thoroughly at home, growing in companies of hundreds that make what might almost be termed a forest. One has a sense of strangeness in threading these pillared aisles. One's steps rattle harshly on a pavement of dry yellow leaves whose mahogany-brown stems, long, tough, and thorny, impose care in walking, while the mind does not easily ignore the thought of snakes, tarantulas, and scorpions that find the deep, dry cover highly agreeable to their constitutions. The summer temperature here is of the hottest, for weeks ranging daily over a 100 degrees in the shade, and often over a 110, with not infrequent excursions into the hundred and twenties. A few miles out on the plain, another group shows a distinctive feature of chance arrangement. Twelve palms stand approximately in a line, and the number has given them the name the Twelve Apostles. Local fancy takes pleasure in pointing out that one of them is headless and dead, the result of a lightning stroke. This, of course, is Judas, and verily there is something infamous in the mean, misbegotten shape. Nothing in the vegetable world is so hideous as a headless palm. Other trees, when killed or decayed, have at least a touch of the grotesque or pictorial. The palm that loses its head loses all. There remains merely a hateful stick, not even pathetic, only sinister. Out on the wind-swept plain to the east of Palm Springs lies the oasis of Seven Palms. The name does not now describe the group, though no doubt it once did so. Placed here and there in picturesque mode, singly in twos or threes and one larger cluster, a score or so of Washingtonias inhabit a space of a few acres surrounding a pool of alkaline water. Years ago, a settler made a homestead here, in his flat-roofed, unpainted dwelling, weathered into drab conformity of hue, merges with gray thickets of arrowweed. The charm of the place, apart from its palms, is in the grandeur of its mountain prospect, dominated to the south by colossal San Jacinto, whose two-mile height soars close at hand, undwarfed by intervening foothills. San Gorgonio rises somewhat more distant, but not less superb, a little to the west. The spot has a special drawback, too. The pestilent wind which blows down the pass for days and weeks, or, for aught I know, months and years together, making the daylight hours a misery, the nights a howling nightmare. Relief could generally be found, however, by the margin of the pool, and always enjoyment in noting the quaint, humorous ways of the bird and animal life that resorted there. Four miles farther north, near the foothills of San Bernardino, are twin colonies which have given the place the name of Two Bunch Palms. Growing at the edge of a little bluff, they are finely placed, and from among them one gets again vistas of those two great peaks, always claiming the gaze, whether serene under cloudless blue, hallowed with snow, or darkly freighted with storms. Such things are unique in American landscape and sends one's thoughts wandering for comparisons to Ararat 
Rubenzori, or famed Cashmere. I shall not soon forget one spring night when, beneath these palms, I was for once near the intoxication point of moonlight. For hours I lay unable to sleep while I was showered with moon arrows, passionately bright, that streamed from the polished fronds as they thrashed and undulated in a screaming wind. It was the Valkyrie's ride translated into moonlight, but outdoing Wagner, almost beating the incoherencies of Strauss. The village of Palm Springs, ten miles to the south, has some fame as a winter health resort. It also offers the tourist, by comfortable accommodations, the means of exploring with ease a few of the palm communities. In the village, there is a valuable medicinal spring, which rises, with a temperature of 103 degrees, beneath a flourishing cluster of palms. The spring is on the reservation of the Aguacaliente Indians, and the bathhouse is operated for their financial benefit. It is a new, crude affair, and I confess I enjoyed more the quite primitive contrivances of a few years ago, when to the weird sensation produced by the gulpings and gurglings of the spring, which is a kind of quicksand in consistency, was added the excitement of guessing whether the rickety little hut would fall to pieces while you were taking your bath, or would spare you and collapse over the next comer. This zest of adventure has now been lost, as has also the healthful exercise of pursuing the key all over the reservation to its lair in the capacious pocket of old Maria's wrapper of antique, well-washed blue. The arm of the desert that reaches southward from the village ends in a long, winding ravine known as Palm Canyon. Hundreds of palms grow here along the course of a romantic stream, bending in dreamy beauty over glassy reach and pool, or disposed in natively artistic attitudes on the lower slopes of the canyon walls. The combination of arrowy brook, wild ravine, and tropic multitude of palms makes the spot an enchanting one, and it never fails to draw a tribute of surprised approval, even from the callous globetrotter. In winter and spring, a feature of contrast is added when one may catch from some high viewpoint the gleam of San Jacinto's snow. Then it is a scene over which artists rave, the note of white giving the last touch to a landscape already crowded with powerful colors. Naturally, those nuisances, the motion picture people, have seized on Palm Canyon for their antics with the result of setting fire to some of the finest of the palms. But why repine? Rather, let us rejoice that nature is thus honored in serving art. Hardly less picturesque than Palm Canyon is the adjacent Murray Canyon. Here again, clusters and files of palms give brightness to a ravine somber with high-piled rocks. Not far away are Eagle and Andreas Canyons, similarly beautified with these graceful trees. It is much to be desired that some square miles of this locality, with Palm Canyon as a center, should be set aside as a national park. Scenically, the place is more than remarkable. It is strictly unique for this country, as well as strangely beautiful. While for its botanical rarity alone, it should be preserved in the public interest. As facilities for reaching it improve, ever larger numbers of people will come to view this bit of pure Arabia that has somehow fallen within our territory. 
As it is, I am expecting shortly to find installed at the strategic point a notice board, a fence with a little gate, and a cool highwayman collecting dollars, halves, or quarters, whatever the traffic will bear. End of chapter 2